0: Yours to tend my sheep, no handkerchief but yours to dry the eyes of those who weep. I have no arms but yours with which to hold one's grown weary from the struggle or weak with growing old. voice that yours with wish to see, to let my children know.
1: I'm speaking today with Rua Swenerfeld and Lewis Cox. They are members and leaders of a group called Quaker Earth Care Witness. They've been involved in spiritual roots of environmentalism for a number of years. Rua and Lewis, when did you start being involved with spiritual activism related to the environment?
2: Well, I think I have to go back before that to say that my very faith uh, has led me to activism for a number of years and that as a Quaker I have worked on peace and justice issues and was very deeply involved until I read one woman's words, Marianne Percy, who's a Quaker now in uh, San Diego, who said, "...there'll be no peace without a planet." And somehow those words just struck me right in my heart that I couldn't ignore the issues of the planet and the crisis that's going on while continuing my activism in peace and justice, that there really is no separation of that issue. So that was back in 1991. And I have since then immersed myself in this fabric of activism that when I am feeding the hungry, I'm just as concerned about the health of the food, the distribution of the food, and if I'm concerned about that, I'm concerned about the way the food is grown, and I can just keep going to find those connections.
3: There's a new book out uh, in the bookstore right now called, I believe, uh, Saving Our Children from Nature Deficit Disorder. This seems to be a very appropriate one for our time because many people are growing up without a natural sense of connection to the natural world around them. They're tied to TV and computer games and lots of organized activities and they just don't get into the woods to really understand that sense of natural kinship with the world around them. And I grew up very much differently. We just were lucky enough to be living on the outskirts of most towns where we uh, lived at different times where I had chances to roam in somewhat natural settings and through fields and woods and brooks and fish and just explore. And, and then when I was in the Scouts, uh, we had plenty of opportunities for this nature lore and appreciation and uh, getting to feel comfortable with being outdoors and, and not like it's a threat. So this was just something that was, came very naturally to me and I just took it for granted most of my life that it was something that would always be there. And they would be my place, my retreat to go to whenever I wanted some time alone. I would always be able to find an unspoiled place out in the wild somewhere. It was after a number of years going through college that I began to become aware of environmental problems for the first time. I was just kind of naive about it, and, and just even though I was aware of different threats, air pollution here and water pollution there, I always saw them as local problems and something that you cure just by passing a law or uh, developing some kind of program. But it it just didn't seem like something that would still be a threat to my basic confidence in the stability of the natural world. So uh, when this finally came to an end, just through the right message at the right time, uh, and I began to realize, no, uh, it's all global now. All of these problems are converging from many different points until we're finding out that all of the natural world that we came to love is is being nibbled away and compromised so much now that uh, the future, Uh, is really at stake and and particularly the the kind of world that that I enjoyed uh, is not going to be available to the the children of the future and that was a spiritual crisis for me just to realize that just my basic source of comfort was being destroyed and I felt that that was a major crisis for me in my life
1: since this is a deep concern to you how does it actually affect how you live does this hit you in some personal way what does it mean about the way that you live your lives
2: It's interesting that you ask that because we're always exposed to people who are doing better than we are. And so then we have to look and say, oh, well, look at what they're doing. We should be doing that too. And an example is that there's a couple who are the founders of the Northwest Earth Institute. And Jean Roy was talking about the fact that she and her husband only generate one bag of trash a year. So this means that anything else either goes to recycling or goes into compost, or they're reusing the materials. Well, we're not there. So we're trying to figure out how we can get down to one bag of trash a year or less. We do live in a solar electric house. It's off the grid. We are in the woods, so we are dependent on our automobile, but the offices of Quaker Earth Care Witness are in our homes, so we don't have to commute. We do grow a lot of our own vegetables. We buy used clothes. We recycle our water as much as we can. We buy local. We have a very old car. We don't have a lot of money, so we don't have a hybrid, but we keep reusing this car. It gets pretty good gas mileage. So we are attempting to live lightly, but we're very humbled by those who are a bit lighter than we are. We don't do it to hold it up because not everybody can live in the woods. Actually, people who uh, live in urban settings and can give up their automobile and share resources are maybe the way that the future has to be. So we're, we're not proposing that everybody should live this way, but we're already there.
3: Well, I'm, I'm still back 30 or 40 years in my, in my formative times, and when I came to this sudden realization that things are going seriously wrong, with the whole civilized approach to living on the planet, I wanted to do something immediately. I walked out the door of a meeting where I'd been listening to a talk on environmental problems, and right that moment I said, "Uh, I can't go on living the way I had been been doing, and I wanted to find out how, what I could do to change. This was a period of of great joy as well as frustration uh, because many of your choices are just denied to you living in certain environments about where you can live or what kind of house you can live in or where you can drive. Uh, But there were also these great joys of, say, uh, discovering natural foods and learning to to go into a natural food store and just rejoice in the wonderful fragrances that come through the air in contrast to the terrible smells inside supermarkets with all the perfumes and artificial kinds of things. So, So I knew that I was on a path of great joy and that I was going to change my life and hopefully influence other people along the way. I got prostrated though as an activist and many activists report this story you just butt your head against the wall for years uh, and then finally you you just sort of lose hope that that somehow people aren't listening uh they don't hear where you're coming from they're just off doing their own thing and they're they're not willing to change and and so I did go through a period of of burnout and even uh, this it was partly because I was still on an individual journey and what really came uh, to change this for me, besides uh, finding some allies here and there in the environmental movement, uh, was uh, coming uh, uh, to the realization that the friends were were starting to wake up to this, that many Quakers were saying that this is a spiritual issue and we do have something to say and, and a lot to bring to the environmental crises. So I Joined up because I felt that's what had had been missing, and I got more involved than I had been before. Had you been Quaker before that time? Yes, it was a Quaker meeting where I had had this awakening. It was the meeting after uh, the worship time, and an invited speaker had uh, just laid out the facts plainly enough that I, I couldn't deny the truth anymore. But I didn't find in my meeting a source of support for this, or even in the teachings, or or other. Uh, messages from the Religious Society of Friends that that this was something that friends were ready to speak to. We we had plenty of history in dealing with slavery and equal rights and other uh, social issues and, and we just hadn't come around to that yet. So even though I knew a lot of Quakers who were doing admirable things to live in a simple way, they still weren't addressing the environmental crisis as a spiritual issue.
2: I was a Quaker as well when I came to this enlightenment. I feel like my spiritual home is with Quaker Earth Care Witness more than my own local meeting because within the organization are people who are of like mind because they already have this understanding of the crisis and of our response as a spiritual one. So I look to what we call q e w for my spiritual sustenance it's what keeps me going
1: how is this a spiritual witness i guess that means in part i'm asking you what your idea of spirituality is as opposed to pragmatic i mean if you're doing a a good job of uh, preventing damage to the earth that could be just seen on a purely physical level why is it spiritual
2: Well, I think it's a really wonderful thing, no matter what the motivation, if you are trying to live in a a healthy way on the planet. So I'm not suggesting that everybody should have the same motivation. But for me, my spirituality is rooted in the land. It's in the earth. I came from the earth. My belonging is with the earth. I feel surrounded by it. It's not like a pantheist where what you see is what you get. I feel that there is a spirit that underlies everything, but that it's in all of creation. It's in humans as well as non-humans. It's in the inert, what we call inert, which really isn't inert because everything is living in some way. Everything has that vitality on the planet. Because I'm of the earth, I have to care about what happens to it. If I see it as a living, breathing organism, kind of like the Gaia hypothesis, then it's my responsibility to make sure it stays healthy. And that's the the spiritual nature of my relationship to this
3: work. When I first became active, I was following the model that uh, many people today have come to call reform environmentalism. That is, you're accepting pretty much the way things are, the structure of our society and the habits and patterns of living that people play out today. And this has done a lot of good things in terms of the laws that have been passed and the kind of education that has occurred and uh, programs and, and even improvements in technology. What I was doing was still fitting in with that basic set of assumptions uh, that we just need to fix a few things that are wrong with the way things are going. And I was motivated, frankly, by some fear of my own survival. I felt that things were going bad in a way that I would be better off having some land and some tools and growing my own food and heating with wood and not being so dependent on the technology that seemed to be going awry. What has come about since then is uh, another way of thinking uh, that uh, some call deep ecology, and this is more of a spiritual approach in that it is not looking at just whether or not humans are going to be impacted in terms of water quality or air quality. It's seeing the whole relationship to the planet in much more basic terms, of uh, seeing that they we're looking in terms of the health of the whole system, uh, the whole living community of life and not trying to put human concerns at the top of that but just seeing us as part of this larger set of relationships and it looks into the future and anytime you start caring about other creatures and future generations you're getting into the spiritual realm because this means letting go of yourself and moving into an area of identification and caring that is beyond just the typical concerns of the civilized human being.
2: I'd like to add, too, that if we look to the Old Testament, there are many references to a good relationship with the earth. And then if I think of Jesus and we look at what he had to say in the Sermon on the Mount, we're talking about living a very simple and basic life. We're talking about not using up more than our fair share of the world's resources. And if we were all living that out, we would not have nearly the crisis that we do now. Given the population of the planet now, we could each use 4.7 acres to support our food, our clothing, our lifestyles. But on an average in the world, we're using more than six acres. And in the United States, we're using per person more like 24 acres. Again, if I look at the teachings of Jesus and were to follow those all the way through, I would be living a life that is really in reverence with all creation.
1: I have at least a brother and possibly some other relatives who would say, the Bible says we have dominion over the earth, and aren't we doing a good job of dominating? How do you react to people of maybe religious mind who think very differently about what our role is?
2: I think that the word dominion is one translation. I think that some people would interpret it more as being good stewards. And if you read farther in the Bible, there are many more references to being good stewards. There's the whole idea of Jubilee year where you give away and share. There's the whole issue of every seven years letting the land go fallow so that it can regenerate itself. You don't keep planting the same land again and again and again. So I, I think I can talk to the same people and that we can find our common ground. Because if dominion means misusing and using up, and if we truly care about our children and grandchildren and great-grandchildren to the future, then if we're using it all up now, we're using up their resources.
0: I pledge allegiance to the earth. To the flora and fauna And human life that it supports
1: said you buy locally and that I assume includes your food. How do you eat? What is the component of your diet and why do you do that?
3: We're trying to grow a lot of our own food to start with, uh, meaning that we have actually a spiritual relationship with the land around us because we interact with it. We take nourishment from it. Our waste are recycled back into the soil and we provide habitat at the same time for other residents of the area. We've got wonderful place to grow food and vegetables. And a fine tradition in New England for doing that. And then also in Vermont, there are numerous food enterprises, such as cooperatives for food buying and community-supported agriculture that are part of a support structure for the people wanting to live more in harmony with the earth. We're trying to look at where things were grown, look at labels or ask store managers, uh, where did this come from, and as best we can figure out uh, how it was grown to see that it was done in an ecologically responsible way.
2: Part of our concern is the treatment of the land. What kinds of herbicides or pesticides might be sprayed on things because we we don't want that because it's unhealthy for the land as well as for humans. We have a source for organic free-range chicken, which is local. So these chickens get to run around and have a good little life until their necks are rung. But they're healthy. We get five a year. You get one a month for five months in the summer. It's like a CSA for chickens. That kind of meat is very much just a supplement. Our basic diet is vegetarian, maybe even leaning more towards vegan. We get our milk in bottles that are returnable, and it's organic, and it's local. We get local apples. Lewis dries them in the fall so that when we can no longer get local apples, we can use them. We try to find ways to support the local economy. I don't know if I mentioned earlier, but the average distance of food to the table in most American homes is 1,500 miles. We care about the workers, that anybody that is harvesting or producing the food is getting a fair wage and that is in an environment that is healthy to them. So if we buy something that comes from another country, we want to know that the workers are being treated fairly. So coffee, we do drink coffee and tea, so we limit it to organic fair trade coffee and bananas. We try to limit what we get from a long distance, but we're not ready to give those up yet. And I want to say the thing about giving up. I'm not ready to give up something unless I'm giving it up with joy. That it's not like I'm feeling deprived, because if I feel deprived, then it's going to nag at me. Oh, I wish I could have that coffee, or I wish I could have this, or I wish I could have that. I want to make sure that it comes from deep within that tells me it's time to not be participating in something. And then I feel lighter by it, more joyful about it, and then I don't have to think about it anymore.
1: And what is it that gets you to that spot where you're joyful about it? I imagine there's some changes you had to go through. A lot of people would look through it as suffering, as, you know, putting up with a hard situation, gritting your teeth, getting through it. Why is it joyful for you? You have to work hard, I'm sure, to have your life.
2: We go through a lot of discernment. If it was a really big decision, like a place to live or giving up a car and deciding to walk 20 miles to something or whatever. We would go to our Quaker meeting and ask for a committee to sit with us and and listen. When they are smaller, more personal things, we talk about it a lot together. So I would say another way of saying is that we pray about it. If you give it time and you don't rush it and you sit with it, Something will come through that says, yes, it's time. Our entertainment in the evening, particularly in the w- long winters in Vermont, it's kind of dark early, is that Lewis reads aloud to me, and I quilt or knit or do something with my hands like that, making presents. And we have so much fun doing it. Or we play Scrabble, or we play chess, because Lewis really likes chess. We don't feel like we're missing out on something because we're not going out to restaurants and we're not going to the theater. I mean, occasionally we'll go out to eat or occasionally we'll go to the theater. But we love it, and we hang out with our neighbors. It really does feel like fun. It has become a different kind of fun. And we we talk about it as recovering lost joys. Because many years ago, the people did do a lot of things for themselves, and they did read in the evenings, and they saw this as a full and rich life. So rediscovering these joys is joyful.
3: I think we're also lucky to have known a number of joyful people. Uh, We didn't invent this. It's just that we've had mentors, uh, people who've taken this path before us and have gone through the struggles and have given us the courage and the inspiration and many times the how-to of changing the things that we're doing or adopting different things into our lives. Uh, one of the, the joys has been being introduced to some really delicious vegetarian food. And so that would be just my preference. I, I just can't think of anything more mouthwatering and nourishing and comforting than most of the favorite dishes that we have made regulars in our diet. And that also brings me back to this other issue about vegetarianism. Uh, while I've been here at this conference, I've taken advantage of all the food offerings that have been here that have been just vegan or vegetarian. They've provided some really tasty things, and, and I enjoy that a lot, and I also have a number of friends, Quakers, who have been uh, staunch vegetarians, and I have understood the strength of their conviction, and it's helped me stay by this choice, but I just do not make a religion out of it. It's not where I'm considering meat unwholesome, per se, but that it's something that, under some circumstances, is part of a healthy relationship with the land. We knew a friend who wrote a well-known book on this, Jim Corbett. He wrote the book, Goat Walking. And I remember the line in that book, he said, All killing is life-giving. And so here's a person who said he would not eat anything he had not known. (laughs) He was saying that what's gone really awry with our relationship with food is that we've distanced ourselves from it and made this seem like something out there, a commodity that we just go to the store and buy. But if you have a living relationship and a healthy ecological relationship with the land, then in many settings that does include the raising and caring for and loving and then sometimes consuming the other species.
2: I want to add another thing about vegetarianism. I used to be pretty rigid about being a vegetarian until I became a gardener. And then when I had to kill the cabbage caterpillars or the asparagus beetles, I began to realize that any time anything I eat, something has been killed in order to make the other thing grow. And if I drink milk, in order for milk to be produced, male calves are killed. There's always that process where if I eat eggs, old chickens are killed, unless I happen to have the chickens myself and let them just die a happy death and an old death or, or whatever. So it humbled me to realize that this earth, this planet, evolved in such a way that in order to survive for any creature, it is consuming something else, and that all of it is living. Whether it's the carrot or the broccoli or the chicken, those are all alive things. And the only way I survive is by consuming the energy. It's using the sun's energy that I'm using from something else. It's much larger than an ism. It's really an understanding of our place on the earth and our relationship. I think that Jim Corbett was brilliant in thinking about our relationship to the land and to all the creatures.
1: A question I've been asked since I am a vegetarian, have been for quite a while. People say, well, why should you care about how a cow feels? It's not a person. What in your view is the correct relationship and attitude towards other species besides homo sapiens? (laughs) <laughs>
2: Tough question. I guess I don't see that humans are at some top of the line. I know that there are food chains, but they're probably cyclical food chains. The Dalai Lama actually was asked one time, what do you do about mosquitoes? He said, well, sometimes I do this, and he blew on his hand like he blew the mosquito off. And then he said, sometimes I do this, and he took his fingers and flicked the mosquito off. And then he said, sometimes I do this. And he hit his hand. (laughs) And I think that explains it really well, that we do have a relationship with all of life. It's all important. But if there's one ant in my house, I might move it outside. But if there are 50 ants in my house, I'm going to kill them because I don't want them getting into everything. If there's one mouse, or if there was ever one mouse, maybe you'd trap it and take it out. But when there are a lot of mice, we let our cats at them. I don't have a particular feeling that a cow is worth more than the ant, but that they are all part of this life-giving, life-taking process. I just don't see a, a big distinction in it all.
1: I'm not sure where each of you grew up, but you live near Burlington, Vermont, and Sandra, after her visit there, told me a little bit about Burlington. Can you tell me a little bit about why Burlington or Vermont in general are better or more in tune with your vision?
2: I think one of the first things about Vermont is its scale. There are only about 650,000 people in the whole state. So we only have one representative in Washington. So scale makes a big difference. There are a lot of the old back-to-the-landers, the the hippies of the 60s that kind of moved to Vermont because Helen and Scott Nearing were living there, and they were talking a lot about the the back-to-the-land movement. In the city of Burlington, there's actually something called the Legacy Project, which is aiming towards a sustainable city. In all aspects of the city, affordable housing, health care, child care, green spaces, agriculture, uh, just everything. And the state of Vermont, many years ago, passed an act called Act 250 that judged development on environmental standards. And it was probably one of the first states to do that. So you have to, whenever you have a certain size development, you have to pass certain rigorous regulations about stormwater runoff and effect on local environment and people before the development can be approved. So I do think that there is a love of Vermont that people say we want to retain the beauty and the rural nature of Vermont, and it's very difficult. We're fighting development all the time, and we're seeing the same kind of urban sprawl that's happening a lot of other places, but probably slower than in some states.
1: I asked you earlier about how this is a spiritual journey for you. I think m- most people in traditional religions think of particular crystal clear spiritual moments, highs or lows. Certainly there's born-again Christians who can tell you the exact day and hour that they had their conversion experience. So my question is, what did God tell you to do? When did you get your direction? Where does God come into it?
2: I can remember uh, a few moments. that well, There are probably many, but these come to mind right now. Back in 1994, at the FGC gathering, which we're at now, I was in early morning worship. It was very early, so the birds were just starting to sing. And at the same time, the buildings were starting to hum with the day's activities and air conditioners starting and whatever else. We were sitting near buildings in a beautiful grove of trees. And I just had this feeling that You know, there's a song called All God's Critters Got a Place in the Choir. And I was thinking about the bird songs, and I was thinking about the wind and animals and the beauty that when you're outside, how you can kind of hear a symphony of all these sounds melding. So all the creatures and all the forces have a little piece of the music of the symphony And that we humans have lost the music. We've lost that sheet of music somewhere. And that the sounds that we are making are discordant to the rest of the symphony. That was a clear message that we needed to find that music again. And that's not to say that there isn't beautiful music that isn't created by individuals, but for humanity as a whole, we have this rough, jarring kind of sound that we're adding to the symphony that's not helping. Another worship time, I had just come back from Costa Rica and I had seen a scarlet tanager down there. And I was thinking about that scarlet tanager and all of a sudden I realized that that very bird that I had seen in Costa Rica could have been the same bird that I had seen in the summer in my backyard because it moves back and forth. They, they migrate, and they come to Vermont, and they go down to Costa Rica, so that I could be seeing that same bird. It could have touched down in my yard and down there. And I thought, how beautiful to think of this connection that I have to some people that I met through this bird as a messenger back and forth and that what would happen if the habitat where I live was destroyed and that bird couldn't come anymore, or if the habitat in Costa Rica was destroyed and it couldn't come, and there would no longer be this natural link that had been going on for probably centuries Again, it was a message that said to me that I wanted to do whatever I could to help maintain those links. So those are just two examples, and they did come out of a silent worship time.
3: Where does God come in? <laughs> in my Protestant upbringing, I got exposed to a lot of hymns. and knew them by heart where I hardly ever remembered any sermon. Uh, a lot of them were about being saved to go to some other place that's not this world. Uh, Yet there are a few that did stay with me that did tell a a different kind of message. Um, The one, uh, how great thou art. And, O Lord my God, when I am awesome wonder, consider all the worlds the hands have made. That stayed with me, though, as part of my basic spiritual sensibility, that this world is to be held in awe and wonder and praise for some great creation that this is manifesting. And in my Quaker journey, I feel that I've also come to another understanding that all of creation is God's kingdom, and uh, it's not somewhere else, and that we are all, all citizens of that kingdom, and we're meant to live here and praise God and glorify God through the way we live in this world.
4: you yeah. You see, kingdom is at hand. Promised land is at your feet. Cannon will come when we aspire to be. If heaven's here on earth.
2: I just want to say that Jesus supposedly said um, that the kingdom of God is here and now. And I think that many people have forgotten that because they think of that kingdom or commonwealth as something later. And therefore, we don't have to think a lot about what we're doing now. But if we truly believed that the presence of God and that kingdom is here, then we're going to live differently.
1: Earlier on, Rui, you said you thought it was good if people were living environmentally, regardless what their motivations were. I heard you, Lewis, say something about how you started out with um, strong environmental drive, but you got burned out until you started connecting with community. How is it for each of you different to be a spiritually-based environmentalist What's the difference for you, or is there a difference? Or maybe you're on exactly the same footing as all other environmentalists, whether they're spiritually based or not.
2: Where we live, we have chosen to be in a community with our neighbors. Five of us, five households, get together on a regular basis with potluck meals and sharing resources and snow plowing and that sort of thing. Not all of us are Quakers, Some of us don't go to any kind of church. One of us kind of calls himself an atheist. But we all have a love of the land where we are. So I don't think labels help. I think that each of us finds our own way of describing what it is that motivates us. But I would think that if we go deep enough, they're really talking about the same thing, that it's language that is different. Some people believe that there's a God that is only transcendent, something outside of ourselves that intervenes in history and that we can pray to and will come and do something for us. I don't think about God and the Spirit in that way. But a person who does think that way might see, as I had said earlier, that God gave a gift to humans of this planet and that we should be good stewards of it, therefore. I think of God as imminent, as something that is in everything, and yet somewhat transcendent because it's not just what you see. But I don't feel that it's a spirit that intervenes except through our own hands. Here are two examples of people that would think differently. Another person might not think about spirit, but might act in such a way as a good Christian might. And I'm thinking of my neighbor who doesn't go to church and doesn't think about spirit or God. He's one of the most generous and kind and loving and caring people. So I would say that our acts are what's important, not the words we use to
3: describe why we do it. I uh, just would expand on this idea about burnout. And it comes from a concern about my personal welfare and uh, having a personal agenda, if, uh, on the other hand, I am answering a call to live in greater harmony and to be a a good steward of the land, I mean, it's not something then that I have to feel is totally on my shoulders, that the spiritual journey is something like I just feel like I've joined with a larger spiritual community, and we're doing what we have to do, and we can let go, to a certain degree, on the outcome once we have carried out faithfully that calling. And another thing about the difference between reform environmentalism and deep ecology, the environmentalism, I think, is more of a scientific approach. It can tell us what is happening with the different chemicals we release into the environment, for instance, or what we can do with the genetically modified organisms. But it really can't answer some of the deeper questions about why, why we would not want to do these things or or why we we should pursue a certain path and i think that's where the spiritual journey is really what that is about to give us a chance for a dialogue about some of the deeper more meaningful question about our role and uh what we think uh, we're here for on this planet
1: you are leaders of quaker earth care witness how long have you been part of it and what does that organization do
3: I was
2: in Honduras in 1991 for a gathering of Quakers, and there was a couple there who had been co-founders of this organization in 1987, and they led a little workshop about their organization. So I went and listened to what they had to say and picked up the literature, and this is where I saw this quote about there'll be no peace without a planet. Since 1991, I've been involved in the organization by being a a supporter, and I applied for the job of general secretary, which is kind of executive director, business manager, and uh, outreach person, and I began work in 1995. The purpose of the organization is to raise consciousness about caring for the earth as a spiritual concern among friends. Friends have historically been very active on peace and justice issues from the beginning 350-some-odd years ago, but the idea of a planet in crisis is fairly new We publish a newsletter, we publish books and leaflets and facilitate workshops. I'd say that we're not leaders of this organization because it's many people that work together to make the organization happen. We are staff and we provide inspiration and thought, but I'd say we're not leaders
3: in the early years of the organization, many people were at a loss. They felt this calling, this sense that Quakers really belong in this field and needed to do something about it, but just they weren't sure. So many, many months went by with meetings and communications and feeling their way forward. I think they needed to come to terms with uh, Quaker beliefs and values and theology to see if it really they could get the larger religious society of friends to embrace this as part of their values or testimonies. And we've made a lot of progress in just that dialogue, uh, coming to terms with that. And then other areas we questioned were what actually should we be doing? You know, should we just be publishing or should we be out doing something more actively? I think the final resolution of that was the both that we have a role to be a forum for thinking this through and talking it through, but as well as examples and as a means by which we're going to assist people who feel the spiritual leading to carry out that work in their own communities. There's a sort of a dual role that we play there. Uh, one thing that we've been burdened by, though, is what a lot of environmentalists complain about. They're labeled or pigeonholed as tree huggers and a fringe group. And we've tried to find ways to avoid getting marginalized in that way. One of the best things that I think ever happened with our organization was getting linked up with an agricultural project in Costa Rica that is called Inca La Bella. And this is just a project that was started by Quakers from the Quaker community of Monteverde in uh, Costa Rica, who had for years championed the preservation of the fragile cloud forest ecosystem uh, that surrounded their community. They did a great job of this and had preserved thousands and thousands of hectares that were home to endangered species. But then it began to dawn on them that there were people living in that area who were kind of being pushed aside to preserve animals. And, and so this falls right into the hands of the people who want to cast you in a bad light of caring more about little furry, cute animals than about people and jobs and livelihoods. And so this farm was the perfect answer to that to show that we wanted to spend time developing a project where people would... Could find a role on the land in a way that was compatible with the environmental requirements of living on the land. It's been a tremendous project, been very successful, and it's been a laboratory, you might say, for many of the problems that we see all around the world about how we're going to live sustainably on the earth.
2: There are 24 families that were landless, and they each have parcels of the land, and they have to sign an agreement to farm sustainably and that one-third of the land on the farm would remain forested and they have come to learn about the importance of that relationship of what they grow and the animals that live around them and the birds what kinds of trees to plant that would attract the birds and the monkeys and the whole dynamic system where they live and it's great to walk through and have them be so excited well this kind of tree oh you see that bird oh well it really likes this and and there are problems. the The parcels are rather small. they do grow coffee. It's um, sold as fair trade coffee through a co-op. But because the parcels are small, they're not able to for some of them make enough money to use that as their total income source. so they're doing other work. So we're kind of learning and experimenting with this, but I think it's a good model because it cares about the people in the land.
1: Lewis, you use the word testimonies. I'm sure a lot of people who are listening have no idea what Quaker testimonies are. Would either of you care to speak about them?
3: Well, the Quaker testimonies are the understanding in hindsight of the things that we have been led to do out of our spiritual convictions, the things that actually affect the choices that we make in life and the paths that we choose for the kind of relationships we have with other people. Peace is one of the ones that friends are best known for our testimony of equality is similar in that it does affirm that because we all have that light of the spirit that there is an essential equality among all people and we have been exploring the the Quaker testimonies follows uh, somewhat from the original talk at uh, the Friends General Conference gathering where all of this got started was that the speaker Marshall Massey was telling people There's a noticeable pattern among the the early friends in which they start somewhat at the surface of things, and then they learn to go deeper and deeper uh, over time through generation after generation to understand in a a broader or more, more complete way the things that they only understood incompletely at first. So at first it was a big deal to not take off your hat in front of a person of wealth or power because that would imply that that person was superior in some way. And, uh, so, but this was a superficial gesture just based on the customs of the time but it did lead step by step toward a more deep understanding of our basic human equality throughout society and and many different levels and now we're looking at the same equality testimony and and other testimonies in terms of our essential commonality if not equality with all of the living forms on this planet that that spark of light is not just in humans if it's in humans it, it has to be in all that god created So we are looking at saying that there are rights to all of these ecosystems that we live in relationship with. Not the exact same rights we uh, enjoy in our human society, but at least this testimony of equality is commanding us to consider them as having some value in their own right.
2: I think part of our work is to help us live out these values with the hope that what would emerge is a testimony on sustainability or earth care or whatever word kind of describes it all, that there are many Quakers today who see this as an emerging testimony. But a testimony isn't something that Quakers say, oh, let's write this down, and it's a testimony. It's the result of the actions and lives over a period of time, a recognition that, yes, it is a testimony that's already a living piece of our lives. So we're hoping to help people live out in such a way that it does become one of our testimonies.
1: I've heard this referred to as perhaps a Quaker testimony on the integrity of creation. That's one phrase I've heard used for it. At what point do you think friends are at? How earth-friendly are the friends? Where do you think we are in that process?
3: I'm reflecting on uh, some 15 years of publication of our newsletter, which has been dedicated to what friends have been saying and doing about care of the earth. This is Befriending Creation. It comes out six times a year as well as a number of other pamphlets and books uh, that we haven't written. Uh, These have been written by people who have come forward to say, I have uh, an inspiration or an insight that I want to share. So we've got a lot of this behind us that indicates quite a few friends are really moved and transformed in their lives in different ways, And, and they really feel that this is a key part of their Quaker faith. With the metaphor of a ladder, you might say that we're on maybe the second or or third rung of of a long ladder. I mean, in terms of numbers of friends who are radically changing their lives, we don't sense that that is the case. Uh, But what we do sense is that the people who are deeply sensitive to the Spirit and the leadings of the Spirit, and the ones who are influential and who are going to be the leaders in the future, uh, many young friends, are saying yes to this. And that's where we see the spread and solidification of this consciousness uh, over time. Uh, We see it going nowhere but up.
2: When the organization began in 1987, I would say that very few meetings had come to an agreement or a sense of unity about environmental issues. Since then, many monthly meetings and yearly meetings have approved statements, minutes, that speak to some aspect of the environment. Population issues, sustainability, economics. It's pretty amazing how many. Six years ago, Friends United meeting, which is a more theologically conservative branch of Quakerism, approved a minute on caring for creation. I'd say that we've moved a long ways pretty quickly, and that we still have quite a ways to go. I still think that many friends compartmentalize and say, oh, you know, those are the environmentalists, and yes, it's great that they're doing it, and I'm glad, and they're over someplace else doing that work, and they don't see how it integrates into their own work and their own commitments. And that's our job. It's kind of like uncovering the environmentalist inside these people. They're there in, in some aspects, but they don't recognize that they still put it as something outside of their work but just also by the reaction to people here each year, the number of people who come to the events that we offer, the number of people who offer workshops that aren't representing us but that are on environmental issues. I mean, it's grown tremendously.
1: I want to thank you both for taking the time to talk with me today, Rua and Lewis. and I want to thank you for your work. And I also would ask that you give us some way to contact you if people are interested in learning more about Quaker Earth Care Witness.
2: We have a website that tells it all, www.quakerearthcare.org. So our emails and phone numbers and addresses are all on there. If you don't have a computer, you can call us at 802-658-0308, and we'd be happy to talk to you. Thank you
1: again for spending the time here and for your work. You've been listening to Rua Swenefelt and Lewis Cox of a group called Quaker Earth Care Witness. Also on this program, you heard Tracy Chapman singing Heavens Here on Earth, and you heard Earth Mama performing Earth Pledge. The theme music for Spirit in Action is I Have No Hands But Yours by Carol Johnson. Thank you for listening. I welcome your comments and stories of those leading lives of spiritual fruit. You can email me at helpsmeet at usa.net. May you find deep roots to support you and grow steadily toward the light. This is Spirit in Action.
0: I have no higher call for you than me. Love and serve your neighbor in joy and selfless. Love and serve your neighbor in joy and sound.